Well, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Don't stand just yet unless you want to. And uh, but we're going to come back to it in just a second. Thank you, Pastor, for the opportunity to preach tonight. I do miss some things about pastoring. Someone asked me recently what I miss the most, and I honestly think the preparation of sermons, uh, just the weekly getting in the Word of God for a sermon, letting it speak to me, and then preaching it to others. And uh, so I appreciate this opportunity. I want to say thank you to our church. You've been a blessing to us. It's been a year since uh, we stepped down from the pastorate, and my wife and I and our kids moved up here from Texas. And, and at first there was a sort of euphoria of the burden being lifted off after 20 years and a new, new ministry. But honestly, the first year was hard, uh, just being separated from the church that we loved. And, and I just want to say thank you to Brother Gaddis. It's been a real blessing to us and to our church family uh, for making us feel a part. It's been a real blessing. And the Heartland family as well, Brother Copes and Brother Rocky and others who've been such a blessing to us. We are excited about the new Sunday school class. <clears throat> it is called Planted. It's a little bit of a different name because we want to distinguish it from the other adult Sunday school classes. This is not a permanent class you join and stay in. It's a, a class you come into for 12 or 13 weeks. And then uh, if you already have a class, you go back to your class. Or if you're new, we try to help you get plugged into a, a, an adult Sunday school class that uh, suits your age group. And our verse is Psalm 1, verse 3, And he should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water <clears throat> that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. And uh, so that, that's our purpose. Our desire is for new converts, primarily new members of the church. But really it is open to anyone. You don't even have to be a member of the church to attend. And anyone can come in and be 12 to 13 weeks where, of course, it's a new class. So we have that extra week just in case we need it. Uh, and learn a lot of fundamental and uh, foundational truths. We'll be going, the, the, the analogy I'm going to have is roots, trunk, branches, fruit. Okay? You've got to be rooted in some, in some key doctrines, like theology. You know, you've got to think right about God. And so some basic theological facts about God. And then Jesus Christ. I think we ought to be right on who Jesus is and our relation to Him. Salvation. You know, once you know that you're saved, you're, you're on solid ground. Amen. You get rooted into that no-so salvation. And the Bible. You know, that's all foundational. And then we have other topics such as uh, the church, victorious Christian living, the spirit-filled life, the Christian home, uh, prayer, daily by, the, the daily walk with God, uh, you know, stewardship, that's an important part of the Christian life. Prophecy, some basics of prophecy, because frankly, a lot of young converts are easily pulled away and they get misled and, because prophecy is such a popular topic. So we cover some basics of prophecy. And uh, then the fruit, soul winning, witnessing, glorifying God, the fruit of the, of the Spirit in our lives. And so really, I think this is a series of lessons that would help anyone, whether you've been saved 20 years or got saved last Sunday, and uh, so we'd love for you to come and be part of that. It's, it's uh, on the third floor, so you can get your exercise, amen? Or you can take the elevator. And it's on the south, yeah, south side, I think that's the south side. You know, I moved to Oklahoma and found everything's directional. You know? <laughs> All right, so I hope that you, you know, if, it would be great 
to have some older Christians, you know, that can participate in this class with younger Christians. And uh, so even if you just like to have maybe a little sharpening of the edge and participate in that, we'd love to have you. And uh, so want to get you in, wanted you to be invited. All right. So Genesis chapter 12, let's stand together. Verse number one. Genesis 12, verse number 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed." So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, with all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came." And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, it's also called Shechem in the Bible, under the plain of Morah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east side of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, and Hai on the east and there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. We're going to stop reading there. We're going to read some in chapter 13 as part of the message. But I want to speak to you tonight on three pointers for pilgrims in the promised land. Three pointers for pilgrims in the promised land. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to speak tonight. I just want to be a blessing to my church family thankful for so many here that have been such a blessing to us. I pray that you would fill me with thy Holy Spirit, and I pray that we'd be Spirit-filled listeners tonight. And on this last service of the year, I pray that you would challenge us, convict us if needed, encourage us, strengthen us according to thy word. And if someone here is not saved, I pray that today they would trust Christ as their Savior. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I started on my 2022 Bible reading as soon as the new reading schedule came out and uh, a few weeks before Christmas. And since it's not a competition, I don't think I'm cheating by starting early. And uh, I always love the book of Genesis. It's my favorite book of the Old Testament. And particularly, I enjoy the life of Abraham. He's the only man in the Bible called the friend of God. He lived in a world that after the Tower of Babel, was quickly going astray, and yet, while the rest of the world seemed to be going away from God, here is a man who was the friend of God, who walked with God, and set an example of a life of faith. According to Joshua, Abraham's father was an idol worshiper, but Stephen tells us in Acts 7-2 that the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. So at 75 years of age, Abraham turned his back on the gods of Ur and the gods of his father and the gods of his nation and began a walk of faith in the God of glory. 
a walk of faith that lasted 100 years. In Romans chapter 4, we won't turn there for sake of time tonight, but in Romans 4, Paul uses Abraham to prove that justification is by faith alone. That Abraham was not saved by the rite of circumcision, which he received at age 99, nor through his own moral goodness, nor his own personal righteousness, but Abraham was saved by grace through faith. Can I tell you tonight that every sinner God ever saved was by grace through faith. And Abraham is set forth as that example, and he quotes from Genesis 15 and Romans 4, 3, when he said, For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And so God saw Abram's faith and counted it or credited it or imputed it to his account as righteousness. So how was Abraham saved? He believed. And God counted his faith as righteousness. Well, how was I saved? By grace through faith. I believed in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I heard the gospel that Jesus Christ was the Son of God incarnate through the virgin birth, that He entered this world and lived a sinless life, never took a wrong step, never said a wrong word, never thought a wrong thought, never did a wrong deed, fulfilled perfect righteousness and yet went and died on an old rugged cross. And all of my sins and your sins and the sins of the whole wide world were imputed to Jesus on the cross credited to his account as though he had committed all those sins. And he died in my place and he died in your place and he died not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's a death blow to Calvinism, isn't it? Believe in limited atonement. Well, if I believe that, I have to go to a lost sinner and say, well, Jesus might have died for your sins and he, God might love you and God might save you, but I, I can go with the assurance that Christ has died for all mankind and that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Christ died on the cross for my sins and was buried for three days and three nights in Joseph's tomb and arose the third day victorious over death, hell, and the grave and ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And when I trusted Him as my personal Savior, His perfect life of right, His perfect righteousness was credited to my account. My sins credited to Him, His righteousness credited to me. So I was saved the same way Abraham was, by grace through faith. And then Paul uses this expression in Romans 4.12. He said, the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, get this, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. So Paul says, we who are saved are walking in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham. And so a saving faith begins a life of faith. We're saved by grace through faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so Genesis records, in Genesis 12 through 25, the steps of Abraham. Here are the steps from his calling in Ur of the Chaldees when he turned his back on the moon goddess and all the false deities of Babylon. And he began this life of faith and this, and this following by faith. And it records his steps all the way through till he gave up the ghost and died. And it's set forth as an example for us who also walk in the steps of that faith. So when I read Genesis, man, I want to follow every step of Abraham in those chapters. Because everything the Spirit of God recorded by inspiration is there for my learning and my admonition. 
So when I read Genesis 12 again, as I did when we started over on my Bible reading, I, I read this. Now, there's more to, to this than just a few stops along his journey from Ur to Canaan to Egypt and back. There are, faith, there are lessons for us who desire to live by faith. Here is a man who was a pilgrim and a sojourner in the land of promise. And we too are called pilgrims and sojourners as we travel through this life towards our heavenly home. So I want to point out tonight in the last service of 2021, just three very practical pointers for pilgrims in the promised land. Notice first in verse number six, that when Abraham arrived, the Canaanite was already in the land. Verse number six said, And Abraham passed through the land of the place of Sychem unto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. The Canaanite represents the presence of corrupting influences in the promised land. Abraham had left Ur of the Chaldees with his father and his family. It's, his progression is almost like the old, uh, the space uh, rockets who are multi-stage, forgetting the term, I think it's multi-stage rocket. And they launch and they, they blast off and then at certain times the fuel uh, containers fall off and then it begins to separate into, into various uh, uh, portions until the command module is flying through space. And you can almost see that in the life of Abraham because he launches from Ur of the Chaldees, but he's got to lose a couple of people in his father's household. And so they go up all the way through Mesopotamia, uh, the bypassing, the desert that, that's between them and up through into Syria and there in Haran, his father dies. And his other brother decided to stay and settle there. And so now Abraham is going to continue on with his wife, Sarah, and his nephew, Lot, into the promised land. And this is a new life in a new land. And that's exciting. I think back to when I was a teenager and my father retired from the Navy and we, we lived in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where he was stationed his last three. He was at Sinclair Fleet. He was at uh, NSA. He was on the Theodore Roosevelt. And then he retired after 24 years. And, and uh, I just remember he dis they decided we're going to move to Texas and start over, you know, and be closer to my parent, my father's family in Weatherford, Texas. And and uh, my brother, who's in heaven now, but he'd been a drug addict. And so we had all that chaos in our home that addiction brings in. And, and uh, we didn't have a lot of happy times in Virginia, to be honest. And we were happy to put it behind us and move on to Texas and begin a new life. And I was going to go to a new school and meet new kids. And we we're going to live on an orchard out in the country, you know. And I was going to be able to shoot guns and go fishing with Grandpa. It was an exciting time to go into a new life and a new place. Amen. I think about Abraham and Sarah, 75 years of age, but God has brought them out of Ur and now they're coming into this land of promise. But you know, it's a wonderful thing to get saved and have a new life in Christ. Amen. Amen. I, I think about that. I, I, I got saved at 15. Before that, we had no church background. And I think sometimes if you grew up in church, maybe you may not have the same perspective as some of us who got saved purely out of the world, and, and you have a better testimony. That's what I wanted my kids to have. I'm just pointing out that before I got saved, I was in darkness. I, it was obvious when I stepped into light. Uh, yep, yeah. Amen. Yeah. 
And, you know, when I, I had never heard hymns and never read the Bible and all of a sudden I'm saved and I got this new life in Christ, man, and, and I'm learning about the church and I'm hearing preaching for the first time and reading my Bible for the first time, reading about Abraham and David and, and Jesus and Paul for the first time and hearing preaching about te from texts that are now precious to me but were brand new back when I was 15, 16, 17 years of age and learning how to live the Christian life, making Christian friends. Let me tell you something. The new life in Christ is a wonderful life. Amen. Jesus promised us life and life more abundant, didn't he? Oh, 30 years later, I want you to know it's still a wonderful life, living for the Lord. And, uh, but it's wonderful to know that you're saved and forgiven and a child of God and that you've got a new life open before you. And much as Abraham and Sarah coming into this new land, you have a new life that you can live to the glory of God. But hold on, i got to give you a warning. Because no sooner do they come into the land that they find that the Canaanite is already there. You know, the Christian life is not immune from dangers. This is not heaven yet. And uh, if you want to walk with God and be a friend of God, you've got to take into account the presence of spiritual enemies, your infernal enemy, the devil, your external enemy, the world, your internal enemy, the flesh. But I'll leave the Canaanites, and by the way, before I move on, the Canaanites, you got to understand, they were pagans. In fact, they were the worst of the worst of the pagans. They were the pagans that other pagans wouldn't let their kids hang out with. I mean, they were the, uh, among the vilest of the This includes the Sodomites, the people of Gomorrah. And those, they, they were the worst, but the other tribes, the other kingdoms and, and were, were not any better. And they were getting worse until finally their, their iniquity was full and God commanded Israel to destroy them. You read Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you find all sorts of sexual deviancy, incest, selling their children into prostitution, homosexuality, every kind of perversion that can be thought of that was, was occurring within the land of Canaan. These were idol worshipers. These were perverts. These were deviants. These were uh, folks that, that were going to be a negative influence on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's children in the years to come. Can you imagine a Canaanite welcome wagon? It's pulled into Canaan. You pass the sign that says, Welcome to Canaan. You're now leaving Syria, entering Canaan. I'm making all this up, folks. Not in the Bible, just in case you're wondering, all right? It's using my imagination. Imagine these, this Canaanite welcome wagon coming up and saying, Howdy, y'all. Where are y'all from? Or maybe they were northern Canaanites. Hey, you guys. They said, Where are y'all from? Oh, we're, we're from Ur of the Chaldees. Oh, interesting. What gods do you worship there? Well... Back there, they worship the moon goddess primarily and other deities, but we worship the true and the living God. We worship Jehovah God. Well, that's fine. Hey, we're polytheistic. We're make more gods than Mary. We don't care what you worship. And, uh, but, you know, we just, we're just wanting to welcome you to our, our, our communities and, and uh, just kind of looking around. Do you all have any kids that might want to play with our kids? How about that guy over there, Lot? Is he married? We got some eligible young women. No kids yet. Well, when you have kids, 
Man, we'd love for them to come to our schools, love them to hang out with our kids. We wouldn't mind if you intermarried with our families. It'd be great. And by the way, there's going to be a big feast this coming Friday. We're going to worship Baal and some other deities. We've got a, you know, our, our local Baal priest going to preach a little sermonette. We're going to have you know, some good food and some great music. And uh, you know, we're just going to eat, drink, and be merry. We want you to know you're invited. Just come on over. We'd love to have you. You see, the Canaanite was then in the land. God did not lead them from one pagan society into a land that was a vacuum that had no temptation and no false doctrines and no false gods. The Canaanite was already there. And Abraham's going to have to deal with that. And so the Canaanite represents two dangers in the Christian life. First, the Canaanite represents the ungodly world in which we live. I don't mean the population around us because God so loved the world. That's, in that sense, God loves the world. But I mean the ungodly systems, the anti-God values, the, the love for sin, the hatred for God. The, a world that is following the course of Satan. A world that is lost and blinded, living to satisfy their lusts and desires. John tells us what's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Every sin you can think of is connected to those three things that are in the world. They the, the world represents a place of temptation. It represents a, a spiritual wickedness in high places. It represents values and worldviews that are totally contrary to the Word of God. And so you have a system that has not gone away. It is always there. It's there when you get saved. When you come into that promised land, you're going to find it's already in existence. It's already settled in. It's already put its walls up. It's already uh, uh, has its kingdoms. And you and I have to deal with a world that is against God and wants to influence us and our children. And then the Canaanite not only represents the ungodly world around us, but the ungodly flesh that's in us. So I got news for you. You got a Canaanite inside of you too. It's called the old man. The flesh nature. That part of you that though you are saved, it's not saved. It's, it's, still, it's, run, it's, it's still corrupt according to the deceitful lust, isn't it? we got to put it off and put on the new man and, and be filled with the Spirit so we don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And so even though I am saved, not only is there a Canaanite culture around me, but there's still an unsaved, ungodly flesh that is within me. So what did Abraham do? Well, he practiced biblical separation. That's not something independent Baptists invented. That's something that's been practiced throughout the Bible is God's people had to separate themselves to a certain degree from the unsaved world around them. Not, isolation, not, not being isolated, and pastors always emphasizing this, that we still need to be witnesses and we need to interact with people and care about people and treat people with respect and, and, and try to reach people where they are and hold forth the word of life. But that doesn't mean getting down in the gutter with the world. And so Abraham kept his family separate. You don't find Abraham moving into the cities, these Canaanite cities like Lot did. Lot, who was wealthy, chose to live in tents where he could move around when necessary. Lived out in the country where there'd be less influence on his family, on his own life, 
And sometimes we, we, well, we need to make sure that we've kept a spiritual distance between us and the things of this world and the sins of this world. By the way, he was adamant when it came time for Isaac to have a wife. He told his servant, go back and get, get one from our family up in Haran. But if, the, if, if one of them will not marry him, do not under any circumstances let him marry one of these girls of the Canaanites. Simply pointing out that Abraham practiced biblical separation. Philippians 3.3 says, We are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Can I tell you where many Christians are faltering? Too much confidence in ourselves. Because we don't really believe what the Bible tells us about ourselves. I uh, had the privilege of teaching homardiology this last semester. That's the doctrine of sin. Sounds like harm. Homardiology. And I think the thing I spent the most time on is the doctrine of depravity. And we looked at it from many different angles and really emphasized the practical implications of our own depravity. And I wonder if many of us simply do not really believe what the Bible says about our fallen nature, which is corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts. Why would I trust myself to do right in a compromised situation? I think about Peter. Remember Peter? Don't you love Peter? The Lord says, you'll deny me thrice. Peter says, not me. Looks right in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord tells him about himself. You're going to deny me three times. Not me, Lord. These other guys might read it. He says what he says. Uh, they might, but I won't. And within a few hours, what is he doing? Weeping because he, the, the rooster's crowing. He's denied the Lord three times and cussed to prove it. Am I right? You see, sometimes we, the Lord tells us things about ourselves but we really kind of think the Canaanite within us is not really going to cause us any trouble. Right. Young people will say, and I, I said this a lot when I was pastoring, raising my kids in church. Young people might say, don't you trust me? And my question back to you is, why do you trust yourself? Do you not know what the Word of God says? Why would you trust your own flesh in situations like that? Why don't you want to keep yourself out of situations where your flesh might get the upper hand. And when I was a pastor, I did. I had rules and kept myself out of situations. And I didn't want to trust my flesh to keep me out of trouble. My flesh will get me in trouble every single time. The Canaanite is in the land. One reason we have standards and rules, not only to protect our testimony, but to keep us out of situations where the spirit may be willing, but the flesh may be weak. There's an old story. It was put to poetry, but I, I won't read the poem. I'll just tell you the story. About a town that had a dangerous cliff and a road that went, went around that cliff. And there were several times where people going too fast or not paying attention went off the cliff and their carriage or whatever fell down to the bottom and smashed. And so they were trying to decide what to do about this situation. And half the town said, well, let's build a hospital right at the bottom. So that when this happens, we'll have immediate help right there. 
And so half the town thought that's a great idea. When someone comes off the cliff, we'll just rush right out, grab them, bring them in if they're still alive and fix them up. And then the other half of the town said, well, why don't we just build a guardrail at the top to keep them from coming down the cliff in the first place? Well, I believe a church ought to be a hospital. And when, and when folks mess up, because folks do mess up, we need to be there to pick them up and help and through the Lord put them back together and, and help them to live their life for God. And, and we want to help our wounded and those who, are, who fall to temptation and fall to restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. But I tell you something, it's far better to have something at the top that keeps them from ever hitting the bottom. Amen. To do that, we've got to remember the Canaanites in the land. Amen. There's a second thing. Then I want to point out in verses 7 and 8, and that's an altar between Bethel and Hai. And the altar represents a life of spiritual devotion. Notice verse 7. Look at verse 8. He removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So he's traveling southward, and you can follow the life of Abraham by his altars. And so in verse 8, you find first he, he built an altar in verse number uh, 7. Then he moves a little further south and builds another altar at this mountain, which is probably Mount Ephraim, with, which was uh, between Bethel and Hai. And so he's on a mountain on a ridge. And on one side of the west is Bethel, and on the east is Hai. It's also called Ai and Joshua. That's where the Israelites suffered their first loss after Jericho. And uh, here it's called Hai. And so the meanings of these names are important. Bethel means the house of God. Hai, according to the Holman Bible Dictionary, means ruins or heaps of ruins. Now, if you can't see the illustration there, now here's a man at his altar, and on one side he can go down this side of the mountain to the house of God, or he can go down this side of the mountain to the heaps of ruins, and it's going to depend upon his, his devotion to God represented by his altar. That's right. By the way, you know who else is there? Lot. Abraham represents a life lived for God, though he didn't have the house of God that was later, but he had a life of devotion to God, and yet Lot, his life, went down the other side and ended up heaps of ruins. And a, a caveman living in, with his own sons slash grandsons. Now, if you're saved, you're, you're heaven bound, nothing can change that, amen? amen. You can't lose your salvation because you're not keeping your salvation. That's God keeping it. And if it was up to you, you'd have already lost it. But thank God you're not responsible. God's the one that's going to keep you by his own power and uh, by his atonement. And uh, so, but it is possible for a saved person to have an earthly life best described as heaps of ruins. And the difference is going to be our heartfelt dedication to Jesus Christ. Well, you might say, well, that's the Old Testament preacher. We don't use stone altars today. Oh, we have an altar and in Romans 12, Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your, your, your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable surface. You don't need a stone altar to present yourself. These steps will do. Your chair will do. Your bedside will do. Your kitchen table chair will do. Your recliner will do. And to present yourself to God and, and have that truly dedicated, devoted, spiritual life. Yes. 
represented by an altar, which identified his faith and his willingness to sacrifice and his worship of the true and living God. So how do I know an altar is important? Well, I, I'm going to get to Egypt in just a moment, but we know that Abraham then went down to Egypt. He made a mistake, went down during time of famine. He lied about his wife and got embarrassed and got sent back. Notice in Genesis 13 and verse number 2. I want you to see the difference between Abraham and Lot. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar which he made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot also, notice this, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now, what does Abraham have that Lot has? Well, material goods. I mean, Abraham is richer. He's got gold and silver, but they all have flocks and herds. And, and, uh, and Lot has tents and indicating he probably has servants of his own. That, and we find them later on, uh, that his, his own sheep herders and stuff. And so you find that Abraham and Lot have the same material wealth. But Abraham has one thing that Lot does not. He's got an altar. He's got an altar. And you may say, well, you know, Brother Raspberry, Abraham was the patriarch, the head of the house, and so Lot wouldn't have his own altar because he would just, because Abraham is the patriarch of the family. Yeah, but then Lot left. And you still don't find an altar. Because now he's pitching his tent towards Sodom, but I don't find an altar. Then he's living in Sodom, and I don't find an altar. Now he's on the city council of Sodom, and I don't find an altar. Can I tell you something? You can only piggyback on someone else's faith for so long. There has to come a time when, and by the way, I don't blame him for following Abraham. I want to follow Abraham. But where was his own heart devotion to God? Lot was saved according to the New Testament, but he represents a carnal believer who, is, who knows God, but doesn't have that worship or that devotion to God represented by an altar. You know, young folks, well, all of us really, I don't just mean pick on the young folks, but I mean, there has to come a time where it's not just your parents that want to read the Bible and not just your parents that want to go to church. And it's not your, your parents that have family devotions, but you open your own Bible and read your own Bible and spend time in, your, in prayer for yourself and, and go to church on your own. If your parents didn't come to church, would you find a way to church? My wife was a bus kid. She, her parents didn't bring her to church. She got on a bus every Sunday and then she bummed rides until she got her own car. But she wanted to be at the house of God. Where is your altar? Do you have an altar? When are you going to build an altar? When you're 16, when you're 26, when you're 36, 46, 56, or never? Why not have your own place of dedication surrender? I remember I, was, I got saved at 15 and got baptized at 16. I was a little slow and the church wasn't real aggressive about it. And I got baptized at 16, called to preach at 17, enrolled in Bible college. Didn't know Genesis from revolutions. Thought Job, Job was looking for a job, you know. And, uh, and I, I went, but I was called to preach, wanted to serve the Lord, wanted to be dedicated to the Lord. And I remember going to a, to a preacher's meeting and Brother Bob Smith, who became my pastor later, preached a sermon about his own surrender. He pulled out his handkerchief and he said, you know, I finally came to a point. I knelt at the altar in our little country church and I waved my hanky over my head and I said, I surrender. 
I surrender. And I was so impressionable and corny that I left that meeting that night, drove to Weather, back to Weatherford, Texas, and stopped at the 24-hour Walmart, went inside, bought a package of handkerchiefs, drove home, knelt next to my bed, pulled out my brand new handkerchief, and waved and said, I surrender too. <laughs> and I had that handkerchief for many years. My mother embroidered Romans 6.13 on it, and I had it for a long time and lost it. Do you know what? You need to surrender to the Lord. Amen. You need to have your own altar and your own walk with God, and it can start tonight. So the first thing we see is the Canaanites in the land. Then we see an altar between Bethel and Hai. You're between heaps of ruin and the house of God, and the difference would be a life of devotion to God. And then thirdly, we see the road back from Egypt to the altar in chapter 13. There is a way back for the wayward saint. Abraham arrived. This all, according to Usher's chronology, this all happened in one year. You know, he comes into the land and he's traveling south. As you know, it's not a very big land. He gets all the way to the south. There's a famine. So he decides to, without any leadership from God, God never said to go to, to Egypt, but he just, he just keeps on going and crosses over into Egypt, which is not exactly like going to Tulsa. We're talking about a 500-mile journey. Settles in there, tells his wife to lie about being his wife. They get in all kinds of compromising trouble and, uh, and get embarrassed by, by Pharaoh and get sent back out of the country. And, and don't you know, that was a quiet ride home. <laughs> so what did Abraham do? Did he give up and go back to Ur of the Chaldees? No, he went back to the last altar that he built. Made a beeline right back up to that mountain between Hai and Bethel. Right back to that stone altar, that simple stone altar that he built and was still sitting there. Went back to where he had essentially wandered from God. Came back with some baggage, came back with Hagar. Lot, had, Lot apparently fell in love with Egypt while he was down there. And one reason he chose Sodom, it, it seems like, is because it looked like Egypt, reminded him of Egypt. I mean, his, so there was some baggage, but I'm glad that Abraham who's far off in Egypt where he shouldn't be, lying, hurting his testimony, embarrassing his wife. I'm glad God didn't say, you know what, Abraham, never mind. I'm going to find somebody else. But rather, Abraham just packed up his stuff, went back, made a beeline right back to the last altar that he'd built. And he got right with God. And you know what? His life of faith continued on. Continued on. Maybe here at the end of 2021, though you're here on a Wednesday night, maybe you've wandered a little bit. Wouldn't surprise me. There's no Christian that goes through the Christian life without stumbling, backsliding some, getting little crossways at times. If Abraham could get scared in a famine, maybe you got scared in a famine. If Abraham could wander a little further south than he should have been, maybe you could wander a little further south than you ought to be. If Abraham could lie about his wife, maybe you lied about something too. Do you know how to get right with God? You go back to where you left him. You go back to where you swerved. You go back to where you left the path. You go back to the altar. Maybe you've sidestepped from the path God has for you. You're still in church. You haven't really done anything that's irre irreparable. You haven't done any, committed any sin yet that is just going to wreck your life and wreck your testimony, but 
you're also not exactly where you ought to be either. And maybe you look around and say, I'm not where I need to be. And maybe God has protected you, though you don't deserve it. And kept you from really messing things up. But who knows how much longer before you make that drastic mistake. Go back to Bethel. Go back to the altar. If you're out of church, get back in church. I mean Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday school. I, I, four, to, four to sore. Amen. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday school. If you're in the wrong church, maybe you're watching online, you've, you've ended up in a church that is not what God would have you to be in. You've kind of wandered. Maybe it's time for you to, to get back to the right kind of church and raise your family in. If you've gotten away from your Bible and devotion time, get you a reading chart and start tonight and start in the morning again. If there's some pet sin in your life, you swerved after some temptation, it's time to mortify it, cut it out of your life. If you have moved away from tithing and giving, it's time to start writing the check again and honoring God with the first fruit of all thine increase. If you've become unfaithful in church attendance because of COVID and all that's gone on, and maybe you've just gotten out of the habit of going to church as much as you used to, maybe it's time you recommit yourself, go back to the place where you departed from, and say, you know what, I'm going to get back to being faithful like I used to be. Maybe you've picked up somewhere, you've swerved off into some area of bitterness or resentment, stolen all the joy out of your life, it quenches the Spirit and His work in your life and grieves the Holy Spirit in your life. Maybe it's time you go back and practice some forgiveness or putting some things away so you can get back on track. Go back to Bethel. Go back to the altar. And you know what you'll find? You'll find a Heavenly Father that welcomes Abraham home. Let's end 2021 well. Let's remember in this pilgrim pathway that there are Canaanites in the land, Canaanites within. Let's remember that we stand between Bethel on one side and Hai on the other and the difference is our devotion to God. And if we have wandered and we're not where we ought to be, let's go back to the altar. Let's go back to God. Let's go back to a life of obedience and faith and service to our Savior. Our Heavenly Father, I pray tonight that you'd bless these thoughts. Thank you for Abraham the steps of his life of faith as recorded in Genesis, his successes and his failures. Certainly our lives have both. I pray tonight that you'd work in our hearts. If someone is far away or perhaps even just wandered a little, I pray that tonight they'd make a beeline back to the altar and get started back to where they ought to be. I pray that you'd help us not have confidence in the flesh and help us, Lord, to remember that the heaps of ruins is a potential possibility for our lives if we're not devoted as we ought to be. I pray that you bless the invitation time now. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand as the invitation song is played.